This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hey. We are missing David Canfield today because he is jet-setting off to Savannah, beautiful Savannah, Georgia. Great time of year to be there for the Savannah Film Festival. Um, And we want to talk about film festival season uh, as it continues onward. um, Really, will continue onward for several more months, but October seems to be the high point of it. Um, We also want to get into some news around Oscars of the past and also uh, some new releases, both on television and on the big screen, because... There really is no lack of things to watch right now. If you can't find something you want to watch, you're not trying hard enough. Um, But to get to regional film festivals, um, I'm sad that we don't have David here because he is going to be in Savannah hobnobbing. Janelle Monae is going to be there hanging out with people. We've been getting all these emails about people who are going to be on the ground. Um, Because if you have an awards hopeful, you are all over the place right now. Um, last week, I uh, kicked off Film Fest 919 here uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, with a conversation with J.D. Dillard, the director of Devotion, um, which is a movie I thought was really great. It had premiered at Toronto. I believe it played some other regional festivals. He left from here to go to Chicago for their film festival, and it's going to be at Savannah this week. It seems exhausting, but it also seems worth it. Um, Richard and Rebecca, I don't think you guys have hit one of these regional festivals, but you're very familiar with the ecosystem. Does it seem like it's even more in full swing now than it has been in the past few years? Like, this is the true comeback? It definitely does to me. I mean, I I did a a little Q&A with uh, Colin Farrell and Matt Martin McDonough over the weekend. And it was the same thing where they were like, sorry, you know, Carrie Condon can't be here because she's getting honored at some local festival. Like, (laughs) everyone is just spread all over the place. And it feels very much like it was pre-pandemic, maybe even busier, honestly. Yeah. I didn't think the Inisherin Film Festival was going to go for that movie, but uh, <laughs> I guess they did. Well, they did. pay for everyone to travel and like stay on a cliff, <laughs> right. so it really pays <laughs> off. Those, one of those beautiful houses with the gorgeous views. <laughs> um, yeah, the smaller regional festival circuit is fascinating to me. I've gone to some. I've been to Middleburg. I've been to Savannah a couple times. Hamptons Film Festival, etc. And they're very lavishly funded mm-hmm. <laughs> i think like i mean not all of them are obviously but like there there's money behind them there's certainly a industry connection i mean like i think there are people you know from you know sort of who work in hollywood who are because they live in those communities or whatever like you feel that presence and so i i guess that you know a certain number of years ago the studios made the calculation that to you know call up the private jet and send them to savannah <laughs> or send them to 
horse country in Virginia. They might fly commercial. We don't know that th- there's not Taylor Swift here. We don't know that they're on private jets. That's true. That's that's fair. Um, I think I think oftentimes I just put them on the Amtrak. Um, <laughs> I've never been able to assess like because it, there's just no you know data out there like how materially any of this affects an Oscar campaign, but it certainly does keep them in the news. You know, mm-hmm. like even just for SEO, like if you were searching. I don't Carrie Condon, maybe the latest thing would be like, oh, they were at this film festival over the weekend or whatever, you know. Um, and I think that's a, a interesting kind of thing to be happening this early in the in the campaign. Yeah, I think um, I know we mentioned him last week, but I think Eddie Redmayne is a really good example. Like, I feel like every time I open my social media, he's at Savannah or London or New York in the last like three days. And I think it just keeps these people like in the front of your mind. And I obviously am not a voter, but I know, you know, the same thing probably happens to voters. It just keeps them in the conversation, even if there aren't a ton of voters at some of these smaller festivals. It's just, it keeps them relevant. And it keeps them like greased up, like like, like their their patter is like well-practiced, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. like staying warmed up before a big yeah, game. Exactly. I mean, I think the geographic distribution of Oscar voters and also, you know, DGA, SAG, WGA mm-hmm. voters. It's it's more surprising than you think. You know, here in, you know, I live in Durham, uh, Film Fest 99 is in Chapel Hill in the middle of North Carolina. But my understanding is that there's at least a few dozen Academy voters who are close by enough that that's part of the calculus of why a festival like this can succeed here. So that kind of like retail politics aspect of it, like you get people out there, you get people to shake hands with movie stars and you kind of like spread the geographic buzz for your movie. Like, I think word of mouth is still a real thing. And these film festivals are, as far as I can tell, the most effective way to do it. Like, I think we really missed it in the COVID era era, when it was really hard to know what anybody even liked. Yeah, I think this year, because I'm seeing almost everything back in a theater, it really made me realize the power of that, especially with a lot of the films this year. They're just really great to experience with a crowd. And so Mm -hmm. you can't deny the value of getting voters all over the country into theaters rather than sending them screeners to watch at home in, you know, a month from now. So there's many levels to the value, I think, of, of getting people to see these films in theaters. Yeah, there's a reason that it's impossible to get anything on a link right now. But as soon yeah. as the festival season is over, uh, <laughs> the, the flood will begin. Yeah. And the, the window of time is so short. Like, mm-hmm. we are, you know, it's late October. So I'm really only like five weeks away from voting for New York Film Critics Circle, you know, and like, that means National Board of Review is right before that and et cetera, et cetera. Like, there is a long road to the actual Oscar ceremony, but... A lot is about to happen. And so, yeah, all this stuff is kind of just tightening up the respective campaigns. Yeah. Uh, I do think it's noteworthy. I want to talk about, like, what's been succeeding here. But the absence of the Fablemans, I think, is noteworthy. As far as I can tell, pretty much every other major contender, you know, aside from Babylon and Wakanda Forever, which we haven't seen yet, um, has shown up at one of these regional film festivals. Um, But Fablemans will be premiering at AFI, which it's early November, right, Rebecca? That's when AFI happens? Yeah. Um, It's like around the 5th. And I think we talked about this before, that it seems that after winning the Audience Award at Toronto, Universal recognized that the right thing to do was to go dark and to have no one talk about their movie for a while so that they weren't completely sick of it, um, which is what the front runners often do in this situation. Um, it still seems like a good strategy to me, even though these movies are all getting attention. Fableman sitting this out feels like the right move, right? Did they listen to us? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think some of them might, at least. I don't know if Spielberg himself is, but... <laughs> No, I'm sure they're smart enough to figure out that plan on their own. It's not, you know, breaking it's, the mold. 
It's funny that we, we we had been talking about how Spielberg doesn't always send his movies to festivals, and he'd never been to Toronto before. Um, and it premiered at Toronto, obviously, and hasn't been anywhere since. And it's almost as if they're like, no, we weren't at Toronto. What are you talking about? No, it's not premiered yet. <laughs> like we, we haven't shown it yet. Um, yeah, they're like, they're kind of getting the best of both worlds, which is like a big, splashy, early, you know, late summer premiere, uh, and then radio silence until, you know, they can kind of almost relaunch it. Yeah, well, and Everything Everywhere All at Once, which we've been talking about the past few weeks, they got to do that relaunch because their movie opened in the spring. It's it's a different strategy because, you know, that was kind of a surprise hit, but it's the same thing where they get to come back around and you're like, oh, yeah, I loved that movie. Like, The Fablemans mm-hmm. does the same thing on a different time frame. Um, so I was looking at the audience award winners from these various festivals because it's, it's different at every one, and I don't know if that's regional differences or just what's programmed, um, but Devotion won the audience award from Middleburg um, right before it came here to Film Fest 919, which I thought was really great for that. Um, and especially interesting because its its TIFF premiere felt kind of muted, um, so that yeah. was a nice feather in its cap. Here at Film Fest 919, Banshees of Sharon tied with Quiet Girl, another Irish film, to take the audience award. And I didn't see Quiet Girl, um, but I know we've talked about Banshees and its uh, potential in this race. And then Tar won the audience award at Mill Valley, um, north of San Francisco. So, you know, that's three strong contenders right there, I think. Yeah, I'm very curious about Devotion. I've not seen it yet because David reviewed it for us from Toronto, yeah. right? And um yeah, it was kind of a tepidly received movie, highly anticipated, and then sort of didn't really live up to those expectations, I think. But, you know, the Jonathan Majors of it all, the J.D. Dillard, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very curious about it. It sort of, in the dimness of my mind, is like a cross between a sort of populist crowd pleaser and you know, then you get the war movie enthusiast vote. And I, I don't know, there's, yeah. there feels like something potentially about it. I really, really enjoyed it. And I do think maybe people just don't know where to place it in the compartments in their mind for a film, because it does have, like, technically, it's really impressive what they do with the fighter jet scenes and everything. But then Jonathan Majors is delivering this really amazing performance in this very difficult lead role. So I, I, I hope people can see you know, the parts of it that are very, very strong to keep it in the conversation as well. And I, and I think it will need this kind of momentum, um, you know, whether it's like tributes and honors for Jonathan Majors or or more sort of festival buzz to, to keep in the conversation or a super strong release, which we just don't know how that's going to play out. Yeah, I hadn't clocked before. I was revisiting the first look you did on it over the summer, Rebecca. When you wrote that, it was uh, slated for release in mid-October, and it since got bumped to Thanksgiving weekend, um, which is a real sign of um, confidence from Sony distributing it. It'll open up against The Fablemans um, and Strange World, the Pixar movie, and then also Bones and All. That's quite a a set of movies, honestly. But I think with Fablemans and Devotion, like, I feel like there's room for both. Like, those are targeting similar audiences, but a good way to, you know, take your parents to the movies over Thanksgiving weekend. I mean, you've just given me a brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to take your dad to Bones and all, right? Sure. Well, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's a huge Timothy Chalamet uh, stan. So, um, yeah, like, I'm, I've got five days there <laughs> in Providence, Rhode Island, and I've got to fill them somehow, so... I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional 
playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman. And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, well, let's move on to a much more complicated topic than film festivals, honestly. And Rebecca, I'm going to pivot to you quickly because Sachin Littlefeather, who was recently honored uh, by the Academy at kind of an event apologizing for the way that she was treated uh, the night that she stepped on stage at the Oscars to turn down Marlon Brando's Oscar on his behalf. Um, she died, uh, I think, two weeks after that. And now uh, is the subject of an article in the San Francisco Chronicle by Jacqueline Keeler basically speaking to her sisters and saying that her claim to Native American uh, ancestry was completely made up. It really um, it calls her a f- an ethnic fraud in the headline. Um, that article has gotten a lot of pushback um, from a lot of Native writers on Twitter. Uh, it's a really thorny situation in a lot of ways. I mean, I think from our perspective, it's it's an Oscars story. Um, and so, Rebecca, having kind of watched the Academy conversation and watched the feedback on this, like, does this change the way that we should think about Sachin Littlefeather and her way, her role in Oscar history? I think the problem with this whole thing is how messy it is. Um, When the news came out, you know, a lot of people were like just retweeting the article and and saying, you know, look at this. She's a fraud. But I spent quite a bit of time sort of reading comments from people in the Native community. And, you know, Jacqueline Keeler, this article is in the opinion section and, and she has her quite a bit of controversy about her own reporting and and sort of these racially charged witch hunts. And the bottom witch line... Witch hunts, is, I'm assuming that's not your word. That's words that no, people that, have that, used. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, quote, in quotes. Um, and the bottom line is, Sashin is no longer with us to defend herself or respond in any way to this. So there's something especially ugly about this coming out after she passed when, you know, the people that spoke could have done it at any time when she was around. So to me, it feels like we'll never be able to hear from her about this either yeah. way. And it's, I think, tragic either way. You know, if she if she wasn't telling the truth, then it, it really affects this community that has already been so um, ignored and, and taken advantage of. And if she was telling the truth, it is a stain on her legacy that I don't think you know, that does affect um, a lot. I mean, this event was only a month or two ago. And it's just the timing of it is all so tragic, I think. Yeah. I mean, the the way that even her story at the Oscars has been told over the years, you know, the the story about John Wayne being like supposedly held back by security guards backstage. I think that has been investigated a lot in recent years. But I, I don't think it changes the fact that she was there, the purpose for which uh, Marlon Brando asked her to be there to talk about the Hollywood's treatment of natives on film, which is pretty undeniable. Um, I can't imagine the Academy doing anything in response to any of this. That doesn't feel like their role whatsoever. No, I mean, they haven't, you know, released a statement or said anything at this point. And I think everything's just a little too murky for them to do anything. And, you know, again, I don't think it's their responsibility um, in this case. So, you know, I think... Yeah, we just have to remember that moment for what it was intended for. And also yeah. everything that they sort of reflected on in that event, um, you know, a, few, a couple months ago is still true. You know, the, the Native American community is not uh, represented in Hollywood the way it should be or enough. And that's that that still exists, you know, whether Sashin was, you know, deceiving people or not. 
Yeah, and I think it does reflect our tendency in Hollywood specifically to be like, to focus on like, well, this person was the first X of Y community to do this thing, rather than talking about like the general overall trends that made that landmark have to exist. You know, like it's the story is so much bigger than this one individual. And I think that the current Academy leadership would seem to to know that, like based on the, the tone of the event, like it was about her and what happened to her at the Oscars, but also about something much bigger. And so I imagine that's what they'll focus on. Going yeah. forward. I mean, the coolest thing about that event is it was programmed to highlight a bunch of different talented people from that community. You know, yeah. like Shashin was on stage, but there was music and dance performances and, you know, other talent from the community. So, like, it really highlighted how rich that community is. And I don't I hope that won't ever be forgotten. Yeah, and we're in a better period for Native representation on screen, mostly in television, really, um, than we were when uh, she appeared on the Oscar stage and then many times before in history. So it does seem like there's there's progress being made. Very small progress, probably, but it's something. Um, well, let's turn to movies that are now out in theaters, uh, including some that have been on this fall festival circuit we've been talking about. You know, sometimes you'll see a movie at a film festival and then it'll be playing in the multiplex next door the next day because it's open. But, you know, every little bit counts. Because um, Armageddon Time was at Film Fest 919 here by me uh, and is now coming out to theaters this week. And I think Richard and Rebecca, you guys both saw it at Cannes. Um, so it's been a while since we really dove into it. So I thought now might be the time uh, to assess it and how it's been received and maybe w- where it stands in this current Oscar race. Uh, Richard, have you warmed on it or changed your feelings on it at all since Cannes? I mean, I really liked it at Cannes. It was highly anticipated for me. I, I like most of James Grace films. Uh, I didn't love... Um, First band, no, Ad Astra, rather. Um, <laughs> One of sorry. those astronaut movies. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's an understandable mistake. Yeah, I, that, that mistake, I think, speaks volumes. Um, but uh, maybe I, I probably deserve, you know, I, I should give Ad Astra another shot at this point. Maybe I'll love it on second viewing like I did, like Interstellar or whatever. But Armageddon Time is a movie that I think is, you know, I think Tar and other films are getting, Women Talking are getting a lot of very due credit for being movies that talk saliently about our times. Uh, I think Armageddon Time is one of those two. You know, it's a movie about the past. It's set 40-something years ago. And yet it is very much responding to current and emerging understandings, I think, among white people, let's say, uh, about the past and about the present in terms of, like, how they are complicit, either consciously or not, in racism and and uh, racist systems and i i think for for that reason and just it's good acting and it's nice filmmaking like armageddon time is a is a bigger movie of the year like it, it feels significant and yet it keeps showing up at festivals and not really registering it seems at all i mean you you hear a couple little notices out of new york or wherever but yeah for some reason this thing just can't get off the ground and i don't even mean that it has to be positive Maybe I thought it might just be big and controversial somewhere, but it hasn't been that. And it's so I don't know. I I think maybe this is just, unfortunately, yet another film in the James Gray legacy that just can't really make it work somehow. I do wonder how much it's because it's making people sort of it's a film that requires you to sort of sit with it and grapple with some things that may have made you feel uncomfortable, as James Gray is doing with this film. And I just want, because I had that experience after watching it in Cannes, and, um, you know, I recently talked to James Gray for an interview, and he really helped me warm up to a lot of the things that I was still sort of grappling with with that film. And 
and really respect what he was trying to do. And I wonder if it's just because that's the sort of film he's making that people are, you know, you, you can't walk out of the theater and be like, this is an amazing film because you're still kind of digesting what you saw, you know? Yeah, it's trying to make you feel not ambivalent, but just kind of itchy and uncomfortable yeah. with what you're watching. And I, you know, I imagine it plays differently for white and black audiences, for Jewish audiences. Like I, I've heard a lot of, um, you know, Jewish critics being like, you can't really talk about this movie without talking about Jewishness in general because it's so specific about, you know, what it means to be the children or grandchildren of Holocaust survivors and come over and say like, look, we were persecuted and we made it. Um, you know, that's been such an element of American society for, you know, since the beginning, basically. So there's so many layers to it. And I think Instead of having the uncomfortable conversation, a lot of us kind of want to be like, well, okay, I'm going to run away from this, um, which is an impulse I understand. Yeah, run away or turn instead to the more obvious thing that is saying something bold, but also comforting, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I think that we are, you know, not, I mean, a very, very small portion of the, of people in this country are on Twitter, but like, Twitter does drive conversation, unfortunately, in culture, because we in the media <laughs> are on it all the time. And so then we take stories from it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that social media has, you know, understandably made a lot of us like, just really hungry for the easy kind of black and white, like, oh, like, wrong, right, you know, kind of moral assessment, the kind of quick thing. And Armageddon Time doesn't allow for that, you know, and I mm -hmm. think that it's not ambivalent. I mean, I think it's very obviously anti-racist and, you know, and criticizing this family that's at the center of the film. But it has some murkier areas, some gray-ish areas, and uh, much like Tar does, you know. And I think it's interesting to see people... I mean, Tar has been much more embraced than Armageddon Time has been, but, like, you still see with Tar some people pushing back against uh, an aspect of it that isn't declarative enough about its politics, you know. And I think Armageddon Time is kind of suffering the same fate in a more profound way because it really forces the viewer up close to a family that you're supposed to really be endeared to who are kind of as a collective by the end of the movie doing something bad and wrong. And um, it doesn't offer any easy panacea or answers for that. And I think that that's just not really maybe the the taste of the day. Like people want kind of easier um, and very understandably kind of declarative statements about this stuff. Yeah, and if you look at the other filmmakers making movies about their childhood, a lot of the parents, they're not portrayed as perfect, but they're sort of like larger than life or the sort of, you know, uh, Fableman's Michelle Williams character, Steven Spielberg's mom, or Belfast um, last, was that last year? Yes, <laughs> it was. Uh, last it year, was somehow. <laughs> both had sort of this thing about childhood being magical and your parents being magical and I think he's he's exploring something different with this and braver almost so you know people maybe are expecting one kind of you know childhood filmmaking movie and, and finding something else uh, well I think to your point Rebecca like so many expectations about what a movie is are drawn from a logline you know months before the film premieres or right. maybe from a trailer and you know in the same way that people are like oh Empire of Lights yet another movie that's a salute to the movies and it's not that at all it's been kind of packaged that way and Armageddon Time has been kind of packaged in trailers that I don't think really make sense and even the logo of the title like it, the poster it all feels like it's oh it's a nostalgic look back at the early 80s in Queens 
it's not nostalgic for that era, I don't think. I mean, maybe there's an inherent nostalgia in looking back at your own childhood, but like, or a version of your own childhood, but it's not a movie that's like, oh, gee, it was better back then. It's saying it's been bad, it was bad then, and in the same way it's bad now, you know? And um, there's a very distinct reason why there are two members of the Trump family in that movie. He is drawing <laughs> yeah. a very clear line between then and now. And yeah, so I think it, it's, it's kind of, cha- the movie is chafing against the way it's been packaged, which is unfortunate. I think the best thing that campaign can do is get James Gray out there as much as possible because he's yeah. really, really good at explaining what he was trying to do. Well, don't don't listeners have the opportunity? They, they do. can look forward to hearing him explain. He'll it be on this, on this podcast show. in a couple <laughs> <And then> weeks. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a there's a moment in Armageddon Time where they're watching. I think it's, I guess it's the 1980 presidential election where Reagan wins, and they're kind of just like scoffing and like horrified um, at the election results, which to me felt like the most like, oh my god, this is about 2016 or 2020 or whenever. Like the idea of you know white people sitting in their house looking on in horror at what's happening nationally while what's happening to them um, is something they're much more blind to. I That that part was so powerful in that past and present you're talking about, Richard. Um, I was also going to bring up Empire of Light, though, which I saw at Film Fest 919 and is another movie made by a white director about a relationship between a white person and a black person. And I think we are in a moment, a very worthwhile moment of heightened scrutiny of those kinds of stories. You know, it's only been, what, four years since Green Book won Best Picture? Like, I think you have to really have something to say if you're going to do that. Um, and Empire of Light's approach to race is really different from how it is in Armageddon time. And I think simpler. Richard, I know you like the fan. The, I know you're a fan of the movie like I am, so I don't want to diss it here. But I think that you can compare the two and kind of see where Armageddon time is kind of touching the third rail more than a lot of other movies would. Yeah, the movie could have been made decades ago. You know, it's not it's not that responsive to like present tense discourse or whatever, but I think it's still thoughtful and makes the right choices and and says the right things um in a yes, maybe a more old-fashioned way. Um, but but I think but not it does in a blinkered res- way or a simple. No, exactly. Way. I think it does it responsibly, and you know, I think it is very much a movie about race relations at the start of the Thatcher era. But it is also just about two specific people coming together and having an experience, and um, and I think that's that can be enough for a movie to be great and feel big, you know. Um, and which which Empire of Light does to me. That said, I was talking to a, a friend slash colleague uh, about the movie ye- uh, yesterday, and. Um, he also saw it at Toronto and really liked it. And we're both terrified for our second viewing of it because we're like, what if we were just in festival fever and oh my God, we've like put all our chips on this movie. And um, so I don't know, like put a little asterisk next to anything I've said about that movie thus far, because I, I think I probably owe it a rewatch when I'm not, you know, in a sort of festival fugue state. I'm, has Sam Mendes said a lot about um, where the inspiration came from? I haven't. I feel like I haven't heard from him enough about um, sort of where, you know, at, where did I see this? Telluride, he, you know, mentioned both the inspiration of movie, of filmmaking, and also mental health issues were sort of inspired by his own childhood. But I I am curious to hear, um, you know, where this idea came from to sort of have the couple be... Um, you know, interracial. So I, I, I feel like we need to hear his story on this. Not that that is necessarily required for him to be allowed to make this film, of course, but I, I think it add will add sort of a layer of understanding. Yeah. 
Um, well, we keep talking about how we're going to try to predict what the big controversy of award season is going to be. And I think Armageddon Time and Empire of Light both have a, a chance of being that one. But um, like we were saying before about Armageddon Time, it doesn't feel like we've gotten to the one movie that everyone's going to yell about. Um, maybe it'll be Babylon, something on the horizon. Well, there's also a whale in the water. There's also a whale in the water. We were going to talk about this, uh, talking about fall festivals, because Brendan Fraser was at Mill Valley, but it's been kind of a quieter presence on the fall festivals um, since Toronto, and obviously it's big, splashy premiere at Venice. It still doesn't have a trailer out. What can we make of this other than the fact that they are nervous about how to promote this movie? I mean, I, I, I would have thought that it was well-received enough at Venice that they weren't going to worry about that, you know? Mm-hmm. But maybe... A combination of a few bad reviews, including one for me, because, you know, obviously, like, I am the bellwether for the whole industry. They, they <laughs> always turn to me and decide, you know, that's why Jessica Chastain did not win the Oscar and um, <laughs> Nicole Kidman did um, for a movie whose title I forget. Um, but um, I think some of the negative reviews and the fact that he didn't win Best Actor at Venice, which, like, probably at for a moment felt like a fait accompli they were like well that's done deal and then it didn't happen i wonder if yeah they're trying they're kind of regrouping and figuring out what to do there's also the matter of like a24 which we talked about i think last week or the week before being maybe a little overextended because they've put a lot on everything everywhere and this is one of their movies the whale is and so i think maybe it's just like this has to sit in the green room before because we're not ready for it yet We we don't have the kind of time to to handle the whale yet but yeah it is weird the trailer thing is weird that the, there only being one promotional still is weird because this is a movie that i think we've kind of all collectively decided on this podcast like it it has filled one slot almost kind of a hundred percent in terms of like brandon fraser is going to win best actor for this and you still feel confident about that even in this like yeah. weird waiting period we're in i do i mean that said like maybe there is going to be a much bigger pushback against the movie than I am thinking there's going to be when it comes out, because um, it is certainly already a movie that has a lot of people uh, justifiably, I think, wary and upset. And that will only grow, I would think, when more people see it. But but again, I just don't know if those sort of social, often on social media, those storms really affect how the Academy thinks. So I, I, I feel like The Whale is kind of impervious to this stuff. And yet, its promotional campaign seems like they're nervous about it. Yeah, it feels like as I try to dig into the psychology of the <laughs> awards team that is doing this strategy, <laughs> either they're, because A24 has done it before where they keep a film very, very quiet, they keep expectations as low as they can, and then they release it and it does, you know, very, very well. What are you thinking of? Like, well, obviously Moonlight, I mean, that was a long time ago, but even when we were at Telluride and we were talking about this film, the A24 people tried to, kind of play it down. I, I mean, mm. that's their what they like. You know, they want you to go in without the high expectations, which I agree makes a film going experience much better. But it's too late for that because this film has played at festivals. So I think not putting out images does protect it from being analyzed on social media in in and those criticisms maybe um, getting a lot more heated and a lot more fire behind them. So I I don't know. I mean... I talked to another um, exec from a different studio who was saying that they feel like the festivals were so crowded and so many films got sort of more muted responses just because there was so much that, you know, that films that maybe are coming out later do have an advantage. So I kind of wonder Mm. if maybe they're going to do a later season push, but it's honestly getting 
a little too late for that. So I just... Well, we were just crediting the Fablemans with doing something similar, I think. Like, Fablemans is not, you know, they've released promotional stills. Like, there's a, it's a little bit more out there. But, you know, if you get all this hype at Venice for Brendan Fraser, like, does it not make sense in the same way to kind of lay low for a while and then reemerge later on? I don't know that the Fablemans has to ingratiate itself the way the whale does. You know, um, the whale is a more complicated, um, in some ways, movie that is harder to love and I didn't get there with that, you know, and I think other people didn't either. And the Fablemans, I'm sure there is controversy to be mined there somewhere, but um, it's so much more patently obvious in the, in the whale's case. And so the Fablemans kind of playing it cool and riding on the good Toronto notices for a while makes more sense to me than the whale, which like, I think needed a second jolt of praise. Um, I mean, I guess Fra- Fraser did get an award at one of these regionals, right? I believe he got one at Mill Valley. Mill Valley, right. And and so there was some press about him, and it was all pretty positive, you know, from that. And he got an award or something. And so, so you know, it's out there. But yeah, it's weird that this movie that felt very significant and like it was going to be a major player has, has kind of not, you know, sort of expressed itself yet uh, beyond Venice and a couple other small things. So uh, we'll see. But I again, I still, I, he's still on, Fraser is still on my my little bulletin board <laughs> under that category. Yeah. Is it a real bulletin board? Is your bedroom just like a giant bulletin board? <laughs> That's why I, I only do audio on Zoom. And, yeah, and, all the and, red string yeah. would get in the way. Because no one can see how I live. Joanna was always the keeper of the post-it to be like Richard said on October 5th that Anthony Hopkins was going to win Best Actor. And then, you know, every now and then it turns out right. I, yeah. I think Colin Farrell's coming for him. I, this I mean, is I, what I was going to throw I out know there. I know I just saw Banshees, so obviously it's it's very front of mind for me. But he has a narrative. He's so charming. He's so good in the movie. I think people have been waiting to give him, not waiting as long as they have for Brendan Fraser, I guess. But I just think if the, the whale continues as it is without any buzz at all, I, I feel like Colin could take it. Well, it's interesting you say waiting, and I don't think anyone's been waiting to give Brendan Fraser an Oscar. Right, you know, right. and and I was kind of reminded of that watching the whale, where I was like, he's fine. Like, it's not, you know, like it's just that guy from without with honors and whatever, like whatever Mummy. else he yeah. he was in mm-hmm. back in the day. And Farrell is a different animal, you know. Like he kind of came onto the scene as the bad boy Irish movie star. He was in junky action movies and a couple interesting smaller things, but people didn't really know what to do with him. But they knew they liked him. Um, and then he kind of went away for a bit and then reemerged as like someone who worked with Yorgos Lanthimos and other really interesting directors. And, and I think, so I think that sort of like Colin Farrell is a serious actor headline has been splashed around a lot more than the Brendan Fraser's has. So I, I would, I would love it if Farrell, um, made a, an honest play for it and, and, and even won it. Um, and also he has been out campaigning and stuff and, so, yeah, I don't know. But, like, Fraser, by all accounts, is very charming, too. So I don't know who wins in that war. Uh, I was looking closely at the uh, the Mill Valley Awards winners because I said Tar won the overall audience favorite, but The Whale won audience favorite U.S. cinema, while Banshees of Sharon won audience favorite world cinema. So a tie between Brendan Fraser and Colin Farrell there. I don't know what that tells us. I mean, I, I think that, you know, talking about The Whale being quiet, like, I think that is... Significant evidence of that regional thing we're talking about, where there are people on the ground talking about Brendan Fraser, talking to Brendan Fraser. So even if the like social media thing is quieter because we don't have anything to see, you know, those of us who haven't seen the movie have nothing to go on. Um, the on the ground stuff is probably working its magic. 
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's close it out with um, a little bit of talk about television and a plug for our sister podcast. Um, Richard, you are already diving deep into the White Lotus season two, uh, not just for your review, which is up on VF.com, but for the upcoming season of Still Watching. You want to talk about what people can look forward to if they're not already listening? Yes, me and the wonderful Chris Murphy, who is a VF colleague of ours, uh, will be covering all of season two, episode by episode, of The White Lotus on our Still Watching podcast. Episodes will go up most likely Sunday nights, right after the episode airs on the East Coast. Um, maybe there might be a Monday here and there, depending on what screener <laughs> access is like. Um, but yeah, we, we we chose it to cover for, on the podcast because it's such a rich text, you know, or at least the first season was. We, we kind of had decided to do season two before we'd seen any episodes of it. Luckily... It delivers. It's not quite as rich a text as the first season, I think, but it's still very good, very compelling, um, and it looks beautiful. The hotel, you just like want to get on a plane immediately and go there, even though bad things are happening there. Um, <laughs> and the cast is incredible. Like everyone is so good, from you know Aubrey Plaza to Jennifer Coolidge reprising her role. She's the only holdover from the first season. Yeah, there's just a lot to talk about, and uh, it should be fun. Do you have any cast standout, like personal favorites so far from the episodes you've seen? I think the the name that a lot of people might be talking about once they see a few episodes is Megan Fahey, um, who was on The Bold Type, I'm led to believe. Oh, I love <laughs> that show. That seems like a show you would watch, Richard, honestly. I it's can't watch anything magazines. I've written. Come it's, on, no, Richard. I, yeah, I, I wrote all the scripts, but so I just oh. I couldn't. Yeah, I don't know who they cast um, in my dream project. Um but no, I should go back and watch that show. Honestly, it's weird I haven't. But um, she's great. She plays um, the a woman named Daphne who is married to a character played by Theo James, who's this kind of awful, you know, as awful as you'd expect finance bro. Uh, and they're on a sort of double date vacation with Aubrey Plaza's character and a character played by Will Sharp, who has just sold a tech company for a lot of money. And so they are sort of newly rich, hanging out with these people who have been rich for a lot longer. And and Fahey just like takes a role that, you know, Mike White was never going to write something that was cliched exactly. But, you know, she could be kind of a thin character where she's just kind of a little ditzy, but but shrewd also at the same time. And Fahey just does makes a full person of her. And it's a really fun thing to watch. So she's great. All the Italian actors are great, um, from the hotel manager to two uh, working girls who kind of hang around the hotel Um yeah, it's 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 just a good group and and I think I don't want to spoil anything by talking about a couple actors who show up in about episode 4, but there's something really fun to look forward to and also maybe sinister to look forward to there. Yeah, it, again, I I wish that it had a little bit more to on its mind um 
you know, because the first season I thought was so about so many things, and season two seems to have shrunk a little bit into just a story about sex and relationships, um, which is plenty interesting, and there's a lot there to mine, but it doesn't quite, from what I've seen, which is five episodes, have the sort of deeper resonance that I was hoping for. Yeah, I really, I've only seen two, but I really just love Aubrey Plaza. I didn't expect anything less from her, but I think what she's doing with that role is just so uncomfortable and enjoyable to watch at the same time, which is it, what it's my really fun. is great at. It's really fun watching her and just being like, oh, she's just like a one of the good actors now. You know, like, you know, because yeah. on Parks and Recreation or whatever else she did early in her career, I kind of thought, oh, so this is her shtick. She does this kind of monotone, blank-faced thing. And she's done that in other things as well. But over the years, she's really stretched herself. You know, um, there was her role on that show with the guy from Downton Abbey, you know, the superhero thing on FX. I don't, I don't have the title I in front of me. No, well, oh, wait, um, Legion. Legion, Legion. Legion yes. Yeah. And she was doing a lot of interesting stuff on that show, which I couldn't watch because it made me feel insane. Um, <laughs> she was so good in a, a little movie called Black Bear um, that was, a t- I think, at Sundance, where she basically, it was like a her version of um, Her Smell. You know, she's just a really interesting actor who has a lot more range than her early work suggested. And, and that's always fun to watch. Um, the way you're talking about White Lotus, Richard, which I've seen one episode of, uh, feels a lot like how I felt when I saw Glass Onion um, at Film Fest 919 this weekend. And obviously we won't talk about it too much. It's coming soon. But it was like, I would watch eight versions of this movie with a different cast every time. Like, you take, you give me a bunch of famous people in a remote location and set them off against each other. I'll go for yeah. it. But it felt like not quite reaching the heights of the first one. But... That's still a pretty damn good movie. Um, and I think White Lotus might feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, the first episode of White Lotus, like, isn't that thrilling. But then, you know, it rewards investment, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think I was skeptical about there being a second season at all, much like I was skeptical about there being a second Knives Out movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by episode three of White Lotus, I was like, all right, forget it. Mike White, pick five more locations and plan <laughs> yeah. those seasons because I'm in, you know. Um, it's also coincided. Interestingly, I just watched the season of Sur- Survivor that Mike White is on. Um, and uh, I don't know, you, you actually kind of see like how the sort of negotiations of that show of Survivor uh, I think have really impressed upon him in his writing and the way that he maps kind of social dynamics um, on the White Lotus and his other work. It's interesting. I love how much you and Josh Wiggler on the House of the Dragon still watching talked about Survivor in terms like mm-hmm. once you're watching Survivor, everything looks like Survivor. I think. <laughs> yeah, if I if I ever sound tired on this podcast in the last <laughs> six weeks, it's because I was up way too late finishing a season of Survivor. <laughs> it's the skeleton key to all uh, all screenwriting going forward. It's perfect exactly. use of your time. Yeah. And apparently, one of his Survivor castmates briefly appears in the first season of White Lotus. Ooh. Um, and maybe some others are in this second season. This is what ju- this is all com- coming from Josh Wiggler. So, you know. Uh, we'll keep an eye out, Survivor superfans. That does it for this week's show. Uh, you can find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at HWD, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. I'm at Rylaws, and again, still watching The White Lotus. Give it a listen. Yeah. Uh, and Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And I actually have one other thing to plug, too, which is that you can now email us, uh, littlegoldmen at vf.com. Send an email there. Uh, we're not using subtext anymore, which we promoted for a long time and loved, but 
this basically will work the same way. Send us emails, send us your thoughts, your theories, your like wild Oscar takes. Um, we'll take it all. We'd love to talk about it and continue talking to you. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best David Canfield impression goes to Richard Lawson. I am the bellwether for the whole industry. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.